You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. I want to give you an outline of the sermon that we're going to be going uh, over today. Uh, Five main points that I want to communicate with you. Uh, I'll go over them with you quickly, and then we'll we'll break into each one uh, in depth. Uh, This negative talk in our head, the first point of the talk is simply this. Negative talk in our head is something we all must learn to deal with. Uh, There's a right way to deal with it, and there's a wrong way to deal with it. There's a way that is healthy, and there's a way that is destructive. Uh, we all have to deal with it, and we want to make sure we're dealing with it the right way, right? Uh, negative talk is something we all have to learn how to deal with. Number two, uh, we're going to look at how conventional human wisdom instructs us to deal with our human voice. How does the world deal with that inner voice, right? That negative talk in our head. Uh, we'll take a look at that. Uh, number three, we're going to look at the purpose of our inner voice. Why did God give us an inner voice like that? Uh, We all have it. Uh, Why is it there? Uh, Number four, we're going to look at the corruption of our inner voice. Our inner voice has been corrupted. We're going to look at that. And then number five, how the Bible instructs us to deal with our inner voice. So these are the topics of our sermon today. That's what we're going to be looking at. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, Let's jump into our text. Let's open our Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to look at how to deal with this negative talk in our head. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. We're only going to look at three verses, but I tell you what, they are profound verses. Uh, Just incredibly deep. They're a deep well of treasure. Uh, And so let's bring our hearts before the Lord and let's pray as we read his word. Jesus, we are so thankful for your intense passion to save us to pursue us, and to lead us and guide us into all truth. And Lord, we know that this morning that is your will for us. We pause to say thank you. Thank you for caring for us, for loving us, and wanting to lead us. And Lord, we have this issue in our life. We have this negative talk in our head, and we need to learn how to deal with it. And we pray, Lord, that you would illuminate your word to us, that we might receive wise instruction from your word that we might know you, that we might know your ways. Jesus, you asked us to take on your ways and to learn of you for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So many of us are bound down with heavy burdens and the load seems very difficult. Lord, help us to come to you, to know you, reveal yourself to us that we might walk in your truth and be set free. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Chapter 10, verse 3, read along with me, uh, follow as I read. Uh, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments, and every high thing, that means lofty or or proud, or arrogant thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought 
into captivity to the obedience of Christ. A lot there. We're going to break it down. Uh, but let me start by saying uh, our first point of our talk. Negative talk is something we all have to learn how to deal with. We all have it. We all have this inner voice. And I could ask everyone to show, raise your hands. Like, how many of you have negative talking? I just know, if you're honest, everyone's going to raise your hand. We, this is something we all have to, have to deal with. And so how do we deal with it? Uh, for most of us, that inner voice speaks a lot. And some of it is good and helpful. Uh, maybe you're talking with uh, uh, your daughter or, uh, or a friend, and, and uh, that talk in your head, that small, still voice will come along and say, hey, what? why don't you cut her some slack? She's going through a hard time right now. Why don't you just show her some grace? She's really hurting. And that uh, talk in our head is super helpful at times like that. It's guiding us. But sometimes our inner voice is harmful. We hear words like, you're such a loser. Why don't you just quit? I can't believe you did that again. What is wrong with you? Why did you do that? That wasn't smart. What were you thinking? You're not going to make it. And again, uh, we have this talk. And that kind of talk in our head is not helpful at all. That's actually harmful. And we all must learn how to properly handle this negative talk in our head. So that instead of being defeated and beat up and being plundered and even to the point of bankruptcy, uh, we can be strengthened and edified and more dependent upon Jesus. I want you to know properly handling the inner voice in our life is an important life skill that we all need. And so uh, we all have to deal with this, right? We all have to deal with this negative talk in our head. Uh, we've got to learn how to, how to process it. Uh, we talked about the second point in our talk. We want to look at how conventional human wisdom deals with negative talk in our heads. And there are primarily two ways that uh, conventional human wisdom, or the world, if you will, deals with negative talk in our heads. Uh, let me ask you for a moment, what do you think those ways are? How does the world deal with negative talk in, their, in your heads? Let me hear from you. Positive thinking, really good. What else? Drugs, really good. What else? What was that? Medication, yeah, drugs, absolutely. What else? Alcohol, you guys are smart. You're preaching my sermon. Uh, you're absolutely right. The most common method people use to deal with a negative talk in their head is anesthetizing their inner voice. Just wiping it out, man, numbing it, silence it. And we do this in several ways, many that you have already mentioned. One of the ways we anesthetize the, the negative talk in our head is busyness. We just go, go, go. We just run, run, run. 
We fill our days with endless activities and projects. We remodel the living room. And as soon as the living room's done, we say, well, now I want to remodel the bathroom. And as soon as the bathroom's done, well, now I want to remodel the pot, the patio, new patio furniture. And we're just busy, busy, busy. We're always buying something new. We're always wanting something new. We're going out to dinner. We're going out for coffee. We're going to the beach. We're going to the gym. Run, 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 Forrest, run. (laughs) Another way we do it, very akin to that, is through ceaseless entertainment. The moment that we get a minute of silence, do you know what we do? We put a screen in front of our face. It is so bad that you even put a screen in front of your face the moment you go to the bathroom. Are you kidding me? You can't even go to the bathroom without a screen in front of your face? Swipe, 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 ceaseless entertainment. We spend and we waste countless hours on social media. We surf the net. We watch YouTube videos at nauseam. We go to the movies. We watch TV. Mindless entertainment. Swipe, swipe. We can't even sit still for a moment. We can't even use the bathroom without a screen in front of our face. How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. For many, this ceaseless entertainment is a subconscious choice to anesthetize that inner voice. So we don't have to think. So we don't have to hear it. So we don't have to deal with it. Another way we do it, and this way looks a little more productive, especially true for men, we become workaholics. We just have an obsession with our career. We're always on. We work late nights, early mornings. The gears are always turning. We just never stop. And for many, being a workaholic, you say, well, I'm trying to provide for my family. Oh, hey, that's fine. That's good. It's admirable. But we're getting lost in our careers. Why? Because for many, it's a subconscious choice to anesthetize that inner voice. We need to be wise. Another super common one that you guys mentioned was alcohol and drugs. It is very telling in our society that everything we do in our society, every social gathering gathers around the altar of alcohol. If it's a Super Bowl party, it's all about the alcohol. If it's a bachelor party, it gathers around alcohol. If it's a work get-together, it centers around alcohol. If it's a neighborhood meet-and-greet, it centers around alcohol. Alcohol is in everything that we do. Even when we go to dinner. It's dinner and drinks. And maybe when it's not even with friends, now you just come home from work and the moment you get home, the first thing you do is pour a glass of wine. And that glass of wine turns into two glasses of wine. And that 
glass of wine turns into three glasses of wine. Why? Because we are trying to anesthetize. It's pervasive. And for many, it's a subconscious choice. It's not intentional. It's a subconscious choice to anesthetize that inner voice. The same is true with prescription pills, antidepressants, and all these different mind-altering pills. It is amazing how, if we look at nationwide, the statistics on the usage of these pills, it's just exponential and out of control. Why? Because we're anesthetizing. We don't want to feel. And the danger of anesthetizing our inner voice is that we desperately need that inner voice as part of our life. And so here we see how the world deals with it. We anesthetize the inner voice, uh, and it's, it's dangerous, man. And I, here's the second way that we deal with, the, uh, we that, we deal with that negative talk in our head. Uh, it's through positive self-affirmation. If you have been in Barnes and Noble or if you have gone on Audible, you see there is a plethora of self-help, self-affirming books out there. And to deal with the negative thoughts in our, in our head, these self-help gurus instruct us to tell ourselves, I am brilliant. I am amazing. I am intelligent. I am of superior mind. I am, I am, I, 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 I. And this is really prevalent. There are a myriad of ways that these self-help gurus instruct us to have positive affirmation. This last week, I was reading one of these books, and this self-help guru was teaching his students, and he wanted them to, he wanted to show them how he does it, and I'm not making any of this up, this is verbatim. He says, I stand in front of a mirror naked for five minutes every single day, saying to myself, looking in the mirror, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And he writes, it was kind of hard in the beginning. And I thought, gee, you think? Oh my gosh. You know why it was hard? Because it's a Fruit Loop idea. It's crazy, right? But he said it was kind of hard in the beginning. And then I had to ask myself, why can't I tell myself? Why should it be hard to tell myself I love you? And he began to convince himself. And I'm not making any of this up. A few chapter later in the same book, this guy talks about being out at dinner and being with friends. And his friends tell him, Jim, you are so self-absorbed. It's nauseating. In the book. And you know what his answers was? His answer was, I wrote it down. He said, thank you. What else should I be full of? I want to be full of myself because I'm amazing. How can I love others if I don't love myself? How many of you want to go to dinner with that guy? 
Wow. I mean, just crazy, right? And this is how self-help gurus instruct us to deal with a negative talk in our heads. And the problem with this self-centered ideology, the problems are glaringly obvious. Number one, it breeds incredible narcissism. And narcissism is very damaging and toxic to our relationships and to others who are around us. As Jim's friends pointed out at their dinner meeting, Jim, you're so self-absorbed, it's nauseating. Why were they saying that? Because his narcissism was damaging to their relationships. And what's sad is Jim doubled down. Jim's not his real name, by the way. (laughs) Self-centered ideology and behavior causes severe damage to our important relationships. And here's what happens. When we are just uh, self-centered and promoting ourselves, and I'm amazing and all these things, I need to love myself, here's what happens. When our relationships begin to unravel, we double down. We then tell ourselves I am the good one. They are the toxic one. They are the problem. And we then write them off. And we justify it by saying, I have to put up boundaries. And in the name of boundaries, to justify our selfish position, we focus on the speck in our brother's eye and we miss the log in our own eye. And we justify it all by saying, I'm just setting up boundaries. Yeah, well, they're narcissistic boundaries, man. And they're damaging to our life, as Jim modeled out for us so well. When we set up these boundaries, we are just further indulging our delusion. And I tell you what, when we get to this stage in this self-affirmation, good luck, Good luck having a meaningful, deep relationship in your life. Good luck with that. Can I tell you something? There is not a chance you're going to have a deep, meaningful relationship. It's not going to happen. And you're going to be empty. And you're going to be alone. And it just doesn't work. Here's another problem with loving self. When we spend time loving and serving ourselves, do you know what will happen? We will never find the time to love and serve anyone else, including Jesus. We will always be serving ourselves. And here's what I know about our flesh. Here's what I know about our selfish appetites. They are never satisfied. You get a day in the Bahamas, and what do you want? I want a week in the Bahamas. You tell someone you're beautiful and uh, someone tells you you're beautiful. What do you want? Well, it's been two hours and no one else has told me I'm great again. I need to hear it again. Your flesh is never satisfied. And if we go this route, loving ourselves, being consumed with ourselves, I want you to know it's very destructive to our personal and to our spiritual growth. If you want to ruin your mental health, If you want to ruin your internal joy, if you want to destroy the the majority of your meaningful relationships in your life, just focus on loving yourself 
and making sure your needs are met. And you will just radically ruin every good thing in your life. Jesus often warned us of the immense danger of self-centeredness. I know it seems right to us. Like, hey, you just gotta love you. I know that. Can I tell you something? You already love yourself. You are on your mind continually. You say, yeah, but I don't like the way I look. That's because you love yourself so much. You're not so worried about how the person sitting next to you looks. You don't care that they got a big wart on their face. But, oh, if you have a blemish, it's the end of the world. (laughs) Not because you don't love yourself, but because you love yourself what? Too much. Too much. And Jesus warned us of the dangers of these things. Matthew 16, great verse. Let's look at it. Uh, Read it with me. Jesus speaking, if anyone desires to come after me, let him, what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. What does he mean, take up his cross? Die to your selfish, narcissistic, egocentric, self-centered desires. Die to that. You got to die to that. You got to kill that. You got to crucify that. Why? So that we can follow him. For whoever desires to save his life, make it all about him, what will he do? You'll lose your life. Well, I just want to be happy. I just need to love love myself. That's the way to total depression. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This week, I saw an article on a uh, young teenager by the name of Kennedy Little Dyke. Uh, uh, Put that picture of Kennedy up there for me, if you will. This is Kennedy. You can see she's got a prosthetic leg. Uh, uh, Just a teen. She's a teen from Napa, Idaho. And she lived through a frightening car crash in 2021. And that car crash took her leg. Uh, following a breakup with her boyfriend, she was only like 15 or 16, I think 16, uh, following a breakup with her boyfriend, she was crying and driving, and she lost control of her vehicle, and she was violently flung out of the car, and her body landed on a telephone pole power line 30 feet up into the air. Here's a picture of her hanging from that power line. She was hanging by her broken leg. And for one hour, Kennedy hung from that power line 30 feet up in the air by her mutilated leg. She also really damaged her shoulder and the rest of her body was beat up, uh, was in the hospital for months. Something very interesting, she was knocked out. She was unconscious as she was hanging on that, on that, on that wire. And she says an interesting story. Uh, I'm not telling, saying this was right or wrong, I'm just telling you what she said. She said, as I was unconscious... I had a vision, and in that vision, I had a FaceTime call from Jesus. My phone went off. Uh, God speaks to us in our own language, right? Uh, (laughs) My phone goes off, and this was in a vision. This wasn't real. She was unconscious. My phone goes off, and I had a hard time reaching it, and I knew that it was Jesus. And that I had to make, that my, me taking the call was making a choice, either accepting him or rejecting him. 
And I knew I had to do it before it went to voicemail. And she says, I finally was able to grab the phone in my vision. And as soon as I swiped it, I became conscious and I found myself hanging on this wire. And she says, there I was 30 feet up in the air hanging for over an hour. And she says, amazingly, I wasn't in intense pain. I was uncomfortable, but I wasn't even in intense pain. I didn't even know how damaged I was. And uh, they got her down from the, from the pole. Uh, she had to have her leg amputated. They did five different surgeries on her leg, trying to save as much of the leg as they could because the more leg you have, the easier it is to have a prosthetic. And so first they amputated here, then they went above the knee, and ultimately five surgeries, uh, just a, a, ton of, a ton of work, and they only were able to leave her with just a little bit of a stump. And I put the picture of her today back up, if you will. So here she is today. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, Kennedy said that before the accident, I was depressed and I was suicidal. I was frequently, frequently thinking about taking my own life. Her words, she says, I had no idea how self-absorbed I was. Now, Kennedy helps other amputees, and she speaks, uh, you know, she goes to hospital, hospital, helping other amputees, sharing her story, and she also speaks at schools and universities about selflessness, and Kennedy says, I now love my life. Amazing. Uh, Go back to that slide, if you will, how we deal with the negative talk in our head. Number one, we try to anesthetize it. Number two, we try to focus all on self. And Kennedy would tell us, hey, it doesn't work. May we be wise. Negative talk, it just as, again, as a way of review, negative talk is something we all must learn how to deal with. And secondly, the human wisdom uh, of dealing with negative talk is very damaging to us, man. It'll damage our relationships. It'll damage our soul. And it'll damage our walk with Jesus. And this is why Paul would tell us in Corinthians, in our passage, though we walk in the flesh, we do not fight our battles according to the flesh. We don't use the world ways of dealing, fighting these battles. We use God's ways of fighting these battles. And we'll look at that in just a minute. Let's move on to the third point in our talk. What is the purpose of this inner voice in our heads? Why did God give it to us? What is the point? God designed us with a a profound and immensely practical gift. Do you know what it is? It's called your conscience. And your conscience, conscience is an immensely important and powerful and practical gift. I want to put a definition of consciousness up on the screens for you uh, from Webster. Actually, this one is from the Oxford Dictionary, and it's profound. Uh, Take a look at this. Read it with me out loud. Consciousness, an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or the wrongness of one's behavior. Interesting. Here we have The Oxford Dictionary now diving into theology. It is saying that our consciousness, not our consciousness, our conscious is not physical, it's actually 
spiritual. And this spiritual voice guides us to the rightness or the wrongness of one's behavior. Now, the the dictionary gives us some examples. He had a guilty conscience about his desires. Well, I bet he did. What desires were those? Uh, He had a guilty conscience about them. Uh, Another example, Ben was suffering a pang of consciousness. Uh, Interesting, interesting. Our conscience has a powerful purpose. It speaks to our soul. What does that mean? It speaks to our inner self, to the person that we are deep down. I want you to know this body is not who you are. You can be like Kennedy and lose a leg and you're still the same person. God forbid you can lose two legs and you're still the same person. God forbid you could lose two legs and both your arms. You'd still be the same person. Why? Because this body is not who you are. And God gave you a conscience. It's a spiritual thing. And it speaks to the soul, to the person who you are deep down. And therefore, when we lie, when we tell a lie, our conscience speaks to us. Hey, That wasn't true. That wasn't good. You need to make that right. And our conscience speaks to our soul. If we were uncaring to someone, our conscience speaks to us. Wow, that was pretty insensitive. That was pretty thoughtless. You need to apologize. You need to show that that person you care. And there is something very interesting This consciousness, if you will, the theological term is moral law. We have this moral law. It is outside of ourselves, and yet it is in us, and it is always speaking to us. It is saying, hey, that wasn't right. This isn't the right path. Very interesting, by the way. Evolutionists have a horrible time explaining why in the world we should have moral law. For moral law actually is the antithesis of evolution. Evolution is survival of the fittest. So if you lie to deceive your neighbor so you can get something good and you can advance yourself, that's a good thing. That's just survival of the fittest, baby. And if you have to kill somebody so you can advance and take their property, that's just survival of the fittest. And in the end, the human race will go farther and get stronger because all the weak people will die off. And the liars and the murderers and the people that advance, they'll progress. And that is evolution. Hitler used evolution. Darwin's theories. I'm getting off subject. I need to get back on track. But the evolutionists cannot explain why we have moral law. And I love watching them try. And uh, again, I need to get back on track. but, but, But where they go with that is this. Well, they can't deny that moral law isn't there, that conscience isn't there. So they say, well, it's the brought in by evolution for the advancement of the whole human race. But may I tell you, that goes exactly against survival of the fittest, the very thesis of their whole position. 
So they got big hole, gaping holes, man, gaping holes. But back to our study. Uh, we are incredibly complex creatures. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want you to just, if, if you tuned out, man, tune in and hear this. I want you to know this about yourself. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. You were created by God. Listen to this. You were created by God with the capacity to know him and to have a relationship with him. Wow. That makes you different from every other life form on the planet. On the planet. You were created with the capacity to know and to be in a relationship with the creator of the universe. There is where worth is found. There is where value is found. Man, it's amazing, right? And God has given us a conscience or an inner voice to guide us on the right path in our walk with our creator. Look how Paul puts this in Romans, Romans chapter two. Uh, Let me hear you read this. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when a Gentile, when an unbeliever who does not have the law by nature or by conscience do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They don't have a Bible. They've never heard about God. Paul says they have moral law or they have conscience and it is by nature in them and they have that. Let's go on the rest of the verse. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. We often hear, what about the pygmy in Africa who doesn't know about God? The Bible would say there is no such person. For God is revealing himself through creation all the time. And secondly, God is revealing himself through this moral law, through the conscience that is in them. And Paul says they will be judged by what they did with that moral law, their conscience that was written on their hearts in the day when God judges the secrets of men through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amazing, just amazing. And so what does that mean? It means that this moral law, this conscience is given to us by God as a guide to help us walk with him. The Bible teaches, we don't have time to go into this in depth, but the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is also able to speak to our conscience. Convicting us of sin when we're on the wrong path and leading us in righteousness and reminding us of Jesus' teachings and words so that we can be in a relationship with him and walk with him. And so all that to say, our conscience is our inner voice. It is incredibly important. It is a profound and immensely practical gift from God to us. God gave us our conscience, our inner voice, this moral law to guide us in the right path. And our conscience then plays a big role in the talk that goes on inside our head. And that is the purpose of the inner voice. 
Now let's deal with the problem. This is number four on our list of the things we're going to cover. I want to talk now about this corruption of the inner voice. This inner voice has somehow been corrupted. And again, time does not allow us to go through a study, uh, an in-depth study on the subject, but we can take at least a quick peek at the main points of this subject. And let's do that. Let's look at the corruption of our inner voice. I think we would all have to agree that there's a lot of talk in our head. And a lot of that talk does not come from our conscience or from the moral law. A lot of the talk in our head is produced by our own thoughts and by our own voice and by our own impulses and by our own attitudes. And therefore, that talk in our head could be right and it could be what? It could be wrong because we're flawed. We have a sin nature. And therefore, that inner voice in our head is sometimes right and sometimes wrong. It's sometimes godly and it's sometimes self. It's sometimes godly and it's sometimes evil. And let me give you an example. The talk in your head may say, wow, here you are at church today. Place is packed. You're out there and you're waiting in line to get a donut and a cup of coffee. You're fellowshipping with everybody and you say, man, God's not working in my life. I mean, look around. All, you know, all my friends have found a godly spouse here at the Mission Church. And I don't even have a date. God's not working in my life. And that's a thought that runs through your head. Can I tell you something? That is flat out wrong. Those are your thoughts. Uh, that's not God. Our inner voice is corrupted. Let me give you another example. You're driving to church. And as you're driving to church, something on the road flies up and smashes your entire windshield. And you hear this inner voice in your head. God must not love me. I'm going to church and my windshield gets smashed. That's just wrong thinking, man. Our inner voice is corrupted. Not only is our inner voice corrupted by our own sin nature, but the Bible tells us that there's a spiritual world. That just as God who speaks to our conscience, that Satan also speaks to our conscience. And the Bible tells us of Satan that he is a master, what? Master deceiver is what the Bible says. A master deceiver. What does deception mean? Deception means you don't know you're being deceived. I want you to know, you've heard me say this before, it is impossible to know you're being deceived. The moment you know you're being deceived, guess what you're not anymore? You're not deceived. You can't know when deception is happening to you. And the Bible says that Satan is a master deceiver. The Bible also tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan can appear as an angel of light. He can appear as a really good thing. Now, when he does appear as an angel of light, I want you to know he's still lying. He's still deceiving, but he can appear as an angel of light. And the talk in our head 
may actually be evil spirits appearing as good and misusing God's word against us. And it might go something like this. Oh, the negative talk in your head. You call yourself a Christian. Interesting. Look at what you just did. The Bible says light has no fellowship with darkness. Dude, you just had fellowship with darkness. What are you doing? You must not be a Christian. You better try harder. And so we hear that. We go, oh my gosh. We think this is the voice from God because it had God's word in it. And so you know what we do? We try harder. And we say, yeah, you're right. I'm going to be better. I'm going to work harder. And we make a vow. God, I'm never going to do that again. And we get on the treadmill of doing good. And we start running harder. And that treadmill starts going faster. And you know what? We can never keep up with the treadmill of good deeds. It's only a matter of time before we go flying off that treadmill. How many of you have seen those exercise videos and they go flying? That's us when we're trying to do Christianity in our own strength. When we're trying to be a good person. You're going to go flying off that treadmill. Remember the Jetsons, if you're really old like me? Remember the Jetsons? Jane, stop this. Cra- right? Like, yeah, uh, that's what's going to happen. Uh, half the audience, 70% of the audience, no, I don't know what you're talking about. That's, that's what gray hair does for you right there. Uh, we're going to fall. I want you to know Satan loves to use God's word out of context. He's been doing it from the beginning of time. He did it in the Garden of Eden, and he does it all the time. I want to give you a beautiful verse to look at. Look at this verse, Luke chapter 4. It's on your screens. Uh, This is an amazing verse. Read it with me. For it is written, he, that's God, shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. That means to protect you. Uh, This verse is saying God will command his angels to protect you, to give you divine protection in life. That's an amazing verse. I often use that verse on baby dedications. I pray this verse over them. I said, Lord, would you bless this child? Would you command your angels to watch over them, to keep them, to protect them until they can grow up to know you and to walk in your ways? Lord, would you command your angels to keep them? I'm quoting that verse. And what I find so interesting, I mean, it's a beautiful verse, man. It's inspiring. It shows us of God's divine protection upon our lives. And it's real. But what I find so interesting in this verse is, guess who's quoting it? It's not Jesus. It's not Matthew. It's not John. It's not one of the other disciples. It's who? It's Satan. And he's quoting it to Jesus tempting him to misuse the power and the authority that he has for his own selfish gain. Why? To jump off the pinnacle of the temple and have the angels save him. And if he did, he could not be our kinsman redeemer. Going to the cross would have no value. Even if he went to the cross, it wouldn't save us because he didn't live his life as a regular human. He used divine power for himself would make him not our kinsman. He would not be the second Adam if that happened, and he would not be able to redeem us. Even if he went to the cross, it would do no good. And here we see Satan misusing God's word, appearing as an angel of light, quoting the Bible, and uh, he's a deceiver. 
Not only does Satan misuse God's word in our head, but the Bible says something interesting about him. It says that he is the accuser of the brethren. Who, uh, he's always accusing us. So he'll use God's word to accuse us. Let's look at this verse in Revelation 12. We'll see what the Bible says about him in this way. Uh, let me hear you read this out loud, a unified voice. The great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to earth and his angels were cast out with him. A couple of things I want you to see here. We're talking about Satan and it says that he deceives who? The whole world. That means you. He's deceived you before. He's deceived me before. Another thing we see here is that he's cast down from heaven. He's cast to the earth. This is prophecy. This has not happened yet, which means right now, guess where Satan is? Well, he has the power to come to heaven and he has the power to go. He has to present himself before God. Book of Job clearly tells us. God asked him, where have you been? You got to give a report. What have you been doing? He says, well, I've been going to the earth. I've been hanging out. I've been coming up here. I'm giving a report to you right now. Uh, Satan has access to heaven and he has access to earth. There's a day coming when Satan will be cast out of heaven. And do you know where he's going to go when he gets cast out of heaven? He's going to come to the earth. And the moment that he's cast out of heaven, he comes to the earth. And the first thing he does is he indwells in a man. It's the Antichrist. And the seven-year tribulation begins. Uh, and the demons are cast out with him. And the demons are now cast down to earth. And you think life is bad now. Wait till these demons are cast down on the earth. That's the seven-year tribulation, but I'm getting off topic. Rest of the verse. Uh, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accuse them before our God day and night has been cast down. Heaven breaks out in song when Satan is cast out. Woohoo! This guy's out of here. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth, right? Woe. And what do they say about him? He accuses the brethren how often? Night and day. How often is night and day? All the time. He's accusing. He's accusing. We'll finish the verse. Uh, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the work that Jesus did on the cross. We overcome that power. All by Jesus doing his work on the cross and by the word of our testimony that we did not love our lives to the death. Uh, in other words, that we weren't just loving ourselves, right? We were dying to our flesh. Uh, we read this all through scripture. Uh, so what does that mean? It means the corruption uh, of our inner voice. Our inner voice is corrupt. It can be Satan speaking to us, accusing us, appearing as an angel of light. So using scripture to condemn us and, and it's not God. It's, it's deception from the enemy. We see this all through scripture. Zechariah chapter three, there's a high priest named Joshua. This isn't the Joshua from Moses and Joshua. This is centuries later. There's a high priest named Joshua. And Zechariah, the prophet, was taken up into heaven and he has this vision in heaven. And in heaven, Joshua, the high priest, has to stand before God. And there standing before God, Joshua, the high priest, is there, and the Bible says, Zechariah 3 says, and he was clothed in filthy garments. He had his priestly robe on, and it was filthy. 
There was barf on it. There was throw, there was throw up. There was feces. There was, it was stained. It was polluted. I, I'm trying to give you a graphic picture. It was gross. Do you know what that filthy garment was a picture of? Joshua's righteousness. How did it look? It looked vile. The Bible says, God, if you, were, if you would number our transgressions, we would not be able to stand before you. And here's the high priest of Israel. I mean, he's a God, you know, godly guy. And he stands before God. And how does he look in his own righteousness? Filthy. Let me tell you, if I stood before God in my own righteousness, let me tell you how I would look. I would look filthy, filthy, and so would you. And there he stands before God in these filthy garments. And the Bible says Satan is standing right beside him and he's accusing him. Look at that stain. You want to know where that one came from? Here's where it came from. And look at that stain. Here's what he did here. And here's where he lied. And here's where he cheated. And here's where he stole. And here's where he was prideful. And here's where he was arrogant. And here's where he willfully denied you, God, and did his way, his own way. And here's where he lusted. And and he's got all these filthy stains all over him. And amazingly, Jesus is in that Old Testament verse. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus says, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And Jesus orders righteous garments to clothe Joshua, the high priest. Bring out the white robe and they clothe him. They take off his filthy garments and they clothe him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Bring out the golden miter and they bring out and they take off his filthy hat and they put on a golden miter on his head that says holiness to the Lord. And this is a picture of what Jesus does for you and I in going to the cross for us and taking the punishment of all of our sin and taking off all of our filth and closing, clothing us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. If you are here today and you are trying to say, I think I'm a good person, you have no idea how filthy you are, you delusional little fool. <laughs> you have no idea. And the only way you can ever stand before a holy God is with the righteousness of Jesus Christ being given to you. But let me tell you something. It is his delight to give it to you. It's why he became a man. It's why God became a man. It's why God went to a cross. It's why he did all of this because he wants to forgive you and cleanse you and give you his righteousness as a free gift. And all you have to do is ask him. Sounds too good to be true. It's not. It is the very foundation of the earth. Ask, and I will give you. So may we be wise. Our inner voice has been corrupted by sin, and therefore it cannot be fully trusted. Do not believe all the negative thoughts in your head. Our conscience must always be subordinated to Scripture because our conscience has been polluted by sin and evil. 
And therefore, our consciousness must, excuse me, not our consciousness, our conscience must always be subordinated to Scripture. What does that mean? It means our inner voice is not infallible. Well, should I not listen to it all then? No, 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 no. It's still very valuable and not to be ignored, but it cannot be fully trusted. It has to be brought into subordination to the Scripture. It's a great warning light, and we should listen to it, but we need to check it out. We need to go further. So let's finish our time. We only have a few minutes left. Let's finish our time with how does the Bible instruct us to deal with our inner voice? We've seen how the world does it. That's not the right way. Through anesthetizing with drugs and alcohol and busyness and all that kind of stuff. Or through self-promotion, self-advancement, self-love. No, that's not the right way. How do we then deal with this inner voice? Well, let's read our scripture one more time, these three verses, and let's unpack this. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. What does that mean? For though we walk in the flesh, what does that mean? Even though we have a human will and we have our own desires and we have a way that we think is right, we do not fight our battles according to that way, according to the flesh. Why? For the weapons of our warfare, the weapons of our battles, are not carnal. They're not physical. They're spiritual. They're mighty in God. For the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing, every proud, arrogant thing that Uh, exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Jesus. Say this with me. Though I walk in the flesh, I do not fight my battles according to the flesh. That's the first thing we have to learn. Paul says, even though I'm a man, with my own will and my own ideas and my own things and what I think is right and wrong, I don't fight my battles that way. When I have a battle, I deny my will. I deny my flesh and I do things God's way instead of my way. This is how we deal with our battles. This is how we deal with the negative thoughts in our head. Paul modeled this for us really well. He modeled this to the Corinthian church. The church in Corinth was radically unhealthy. It was a mess. As a matter of fact, I would tell you, you better, it'd be better not to go to that church. Better to go to a healthy church, right? It was that messy. Why? Because it was filled with proud and arrogant and hyper-spiritual self-appointed leaders who put themselves in positions of authority. And these leaders were competing with each other. And that's why some people were saying, well, I'm of this person, I'm of this person, I fall. And they were all competing with each other. I want you to know there are two kinds of shepherds. There's a kind of shepherd that wants to get as many sheep under him so he can elevate himself on top of them. 
He wants to have as many sheep as he can so he can eat all of them. He can take from all of them. A godly shepherd tries to feed as many people as he possibly can. A godly shepherd tries to nourish and take care of as many people as he possibly can. Two different ideas of leadership. The world's idea of leadership is, I want to get as many people under me as I can so I can be on top of the pyramid, so I can be lifted up higher, as many servants under me as I can, is the world's idea of leadership. Do you know what God's view of leadership? Not how many people you can get serving you, but how many people you can serve. And if you want to be a great leader in God's kingdom, you're like, wow, that guy can serve four people. Wow, that guy can serve 10 people. Wow, that guy can serve 50 people. Wow, that gal can serve everybody. Wow, that, you get the idea? And that is the mark of leadership in God's kingdom. But that's not what was happening in the leaders at Corinth. They were trying to outdo each other, trying to outperform each other. Uh, Instead of solid Bible teaching, church services were hyper-emotional and experiential. Everyone was speaking in tongues, and everyone was trying to outdo the other. Someone over here speaks in tongues and says, Mama got a Honda. And someone over here says, oh yeah, Mama got a Honda. And they shake and quake. And then someone back there says, oh, you think shake and quake. I'm going to fall over backwards. And they're all trying to outdo each other. Sound familiar? And who's it all about? It's about how spiritual I am. That is counterfeit church. And instead of bringing their lives under the lordship of Jesus, they were promoting themselves as being super spiritual. They were walking around saying, well, God told me that blah, 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 blah. Let me ask you, church, how many times have you ever heard me say, God told me? You've never heard me say that. And if you ever hear me say it, the board will fire me that day. Why? Because God doesn't tell me things? No. But because I walk by faith, just like you do. And I'm not any more spiritual than you are. And to hear the voice of God, I have to die to myself, and I have to read his word, and I learn his will from his word, for his word and his will are one in the same. And if you are married, don't you dare ever bring up the God card. Well, God told me that we're doing this. Well, then all discussion is off the table. And whatever your spouse wants, feels is right, doesn't matter. Because if God told you, that's the end of every discussion, by the way. Don't ever pull the God card. That is hypocritical self-righteousness. And that was what was happening in Corinth. And instead of bringing their lives under the lordship of Jesus, they were promoting themselves as super spiritual. God told me, and they were chasing signs and wonders. And you know what happened? Meanwhile in the church, you know, want to know what the church looked like? They were getting drunk on communion. And there were schisms and divisions in the church. I'm of this person. You don't know what you're talking about. We're of this. We're better than you. That was going on. There was sexual immorality running rampant in the church. Why? Because character matters. And we have to walk under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul has this problem. And you know what Paul does? Paul doesn't take the matter into his own hands. Though I walk in the flesh, I do not fight my battles according to the flesh. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty in God. And so Paul doesn't do things his way. Instead, through Bible study, Paul patiently teaches them that this is not what God's kingdom looks like. And this is not how God's kingdom works. And instead of elevating ourselves, God wants us to humble ourselves. And he taught them through scripture. And he taught them that instead of getting others to serve us, God wants us to serve others. And Paul modeled this for the Corinthians in his own life. And Paul showed them over a long period of time We only have two letters to the Corinthians. First and second Corinthians, Paul wrote four letters to the church. Two of them are lost. And over a period of time, Paul showed this, uh, that through his solid Bible teaching, his solid Bible teaching transformed lives and bore good fruit. And compared to their self-righteous, hyper-spiritual, I'm amazing leadership that produced bad fruit and immorality and contentions and divisions. And Paul was able to show that your way doesn't work and God's way does. And he built them. And this is what Paul is trying to teach the Corinthian church and you and I when he says, for though I walk in the flesh, I do not fight my battles according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. Let's look at that for a moment. Pulling down of strongholds? What's a stronghold? Interesting terminology. Stronghold is a reference to the military towers and the ramparts the Romans used in war. And they were incredibly powerful. Imagine a castle with all kinds of Roman soldiers on the top. And on the top, they have bows and arrows with dipped in tar lit on fire. And on the top, they have swords and knives and rocks and they can catapult and they can bomb you from the bottom. And at the base of the tower, there's soldiers that are guarded with swords and everything else. Uh, That is called a stronghold. Good luck getting by that. Good luck fighting against that. And spiritually, we all battle enemy strongholds in our life. You have them. And they are impossible for you to conquer on your own. What are these strongholds? Well, the biggest one is pride. Here's another one, anger. Interesting. Something doesn't go your way, you just get mad. Any closet door slammers here? You get mad, you go through the house, slam! Why did you slam that door? Because you want everybody to know you're mad. (laughs) I've never understood that one. Uh, You want to know another stronghold? Pornography. Oh, I'm not going to do that anymore, man. I'm not going to do that. God, I'm not going to do that anymore. I promise I'm not going to do that again. And we get on that treadmill. And you make it one day. And you make it two days. You make it a week. You make it two weeks. And you fall again on that. 
You know why? Because it's a stronghold in your life and you can't conquer it. Depression, stronghold, addictions, emotional insecurities, and of course, the negative talk in our head. All of these are strongholds. And fighting these battles with human weapons will produce human results. You might make it a week without anger. You might make it two, but you're going to fall. Human weapons produce human results from human strength. But here's what Paul is telling us. I want you to know something. Though we walk in the flesh, we don't fight our battles according to the flesh our way, not by bearing down. No, we use spiritual weapons that have supernatural power and they're able to pull down enemy strongholds in our life. And I am so thankful when this happens, man. You have a stronghold and you start doing it God's way. And I love watching these strongholds just come crumbling down. Jesus said, if the son makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed. And I never tire of watching him do it in our lives. Maybe the stronghold that you have against you is loneliness. And you're just lonely, man. And that voice in your head, it's telling you, you don't have any real friends. You don't have any deep, meaningful relationships. Nobody likes you. You're so sad. You know what? I think something is seriously wrong with you. And that's a stronghold. And that voice tells you, you'll never have any real friends. And so the Bible tells us that we have to fight this stronghold with spiritual weapons. The weapons of our warfare are, are not any good. They're carnal weapons, but spiritual weapons. What is a spiritual weapon for fighting not having any friends? Well, we read in Proverbs what God's word says about friends. And it says, in order to have friends, you must first be friendly. And so now we fight that battle spiritually and we say, Lord, we wake up in the morning, we say, Lord, Today, instead of me focusing on having more friends, Lord, today I'm going to focus on being a friend. And so I go to work. And instead of telling anybody, you know what? I don't have any real friends because everybody wants to hang out with you when you say that. <laughs> I'm a little Eeyore. No, I don't, have, I don't have any friends. Has that ever worked? Why do you keep talking about how lonely, how desperate everything you are, right? Instead, why don't you be a good friend? What would that look like? Well, you pray in the morning, get your focus right. And you go to church and you bring somebody a cup of coffee and you just set it on their desk. You say, hey man, I just wanna bless you. Have a good day. And you walk by someone else and you go, hey man, you mentioned your kid was going through this. How are they doing? And you start caring about others. And you do it not expecting anything in return. You buy someone lunch. You show random acts of kindness. You just be a good friend. You go out and you talk to your neighbor and bring their trash cans in and bring a, a box of oranges and put it on their door. You just do good things, expecting nothing in return. You just focus on being a good friend. And I tell you what, you do that, and you know what happened? The enemy's strongholds will come crumbling down. You will have an abundance of amazing friends when you become a good friend, and your strongholds will come crashing down. Uh, maybe your stronghold 
is your, your inner voice that's always beating yourself up. Man, you're just like, you're just hard on yourself. And if you get a B on the test, you go, you should have got an A. Should have got an A. And if you hit a triple, you go, should have hit a home run. That's a miserable stronghold. And you say, man, how do I deal with that, man? Well, you do it biblically. Maybe the problem is not the negative voice in your head. Maybe the problem is your pride and your ego. And instead of being content with a triple, you just think you're better than that all the time. And you need to learn that godliness with contentment is great gain. And you need to learn that maybe you're not that amazing after all. And so uh, the answer is not to think better thoughts about yourself. The answer is to think of yourself less, right? And this is what it means to use spiritual weapons to, find, to fight spiritual battles. Uh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. To the pulling down of strongholds, the casting down of arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring every thought into captivity. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.